Now and then, something happens that we regard as a true answer to prayer. We hoped and prayed our child would get accepted to a certain university, and then this happens and we feel so grateful. But then the child attends that school only to have a long time of struggle and difficulty and uncertainty. It makes you want to say to God, why? Why did you answer our prayer so wonderfully only to then kind of drop the ball? Well, the remnant of Israel that returned to Jerusalem after the exile knew all about this. Today on Groundwork, we'll explore why. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And Dave, uh, this program now is the second program of a four-part series we're doing on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of contemporaries. Uh, they're the two books, uh, which used to be, uh, I think, in some of the earliest Jewish Bibles, it was called First and Second Ezra, but eventually they got separated out. But they track the same timeline. And so, as we saw in the first program, the people of Israel have been in exile for a very long time, for quite a few decades, when uh, the Babylonians who captured them were themselves conquered by the Persians. And then God raises up this unlikely hero named Cyrus, a pagan Persian king. But Cyrus decides to let the people go back to Israel. Right. We've tried uh, in the course of this series to help people understand the chronology of all this. It can be a confusing uh, time in Bible history. Uh, even sometimes the books of Ezra and Nehemiah aren't exactly clear on what happens when. And uh, we'll probably point that out along the way. We'll go into that a little more. And then there are these events of world history uh, that many of us are not that familiar with. The idea of the Babylonians, maybe that comes through quite clearly in the Bible. We read a bit about Nebuchadnezzar and how he conquered Jerusalem. Uh, but the Persians, they're a little more foreign. And uh, so we start with this King Cyrus, who, as you pointed out, Scott, is mentioned in Isaiah, astonishingly, in a prophetic passage of Isaiah saying, he'll be the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah in order to accomplish God's purposes in setting his people free from bondage. And that happened actually in the year 538 BC, about 50 years after Jerusalem was destroyed. Right. And so then eventually as part of the uh, people returning from exile, we hear about a man named Ezra. And then about a dozen years later, another man named Nehemiah will return, and they become key leaders in the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But the point being, Dave, when King Cyrus suddenly appears on the scene and releases the people from captivity, surely people said, what an answer to prayer. We've been praying for years yeah. to get out of this captivity. And so God answers that prayer, raises up Cyrus, some people get to go back. And then, lo and behold, what happens? They have years and even decades of a lot of struggle, a lot of setbacks. It doesn't go smoothly uh, once the people come back and yeah. sort of say, well, where did God go? It's not a Cinderella story, you know, where they live happily ever after. So for starters, and by the way, Scott, not only was it probably an answer to many prayers of God's people for many years, it was as it's announced according to the word of the Lord. That's how Ezra begins, that in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the prophet Jeremiah, God's raised up Cyrus in order to send his people back to Jerusalem. So this is, uh, you know, the hand of God who's doing this, and yet 
things don't go well, things don't go smoothly. So as we read the story, and some of it's told in other parts of the Old Testament too, especially the book of Haggai, a man named Zerubbabel leads the people back. He encourages them not only to start rebuilding houses and places in the city, but especially the temple. So we come to this passage from Ezra 3 that describes the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple. So they've now just gotten as far as laying the foundation. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple They wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of the weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. I'm always moved by that passage because it's so true to life. So now we should point out we're in the year 536, as you said, Scott, but now they're going to get after the big project of rebuilding the temple, the focus of worship and the place where God would dwell among his people again. And as they do so, there's a few real old folks who could still remember as children, 50 years earlier, what the great temple of Solomon had looked like in all its glory and splendor. And when they see this, they can't help but weep at the contrast. Right. It's, it's kind of like you know watching a, an athlete in their declining years, and you can remember how good they were and glorious in their prime, and now it's it's just a shadow. Or or maybe a, a mentor that you especially appreciated, or a professor, and now they're going into sort of feebleness and mental decline, and it makes you cry, you know? And I like how uh, the text of Ezra 3 says that, uh, in a way, you couldn't even distinguish the the shouts of joy from the the weeping. And I think we all know that sometimes the difference between laughing and crying, that borderline can be a little bit fuzzy. Um, uh, Sometimes one actually can give way to the other. Uh, You weep for joy at the birth of a child, and then you start laughing with joy, or or maybe the other way around, right? But I like also what you said, Dave, is that we all kind of know what this is like. And I think it's something we remember every week when we gather for worship, that we're always a mixed gathering of some people who've had a really good week or they're in a really good season of their life and they're shouting for joy. And we gather with others who are in a really bad season of their life, who've had a terrible week, had great losses, and they're coming with tears in their eyes. We're always kind of like these people. Um, It's a good thing for pastors and worship leaders to bear in mind and be sensitive to. It's just sort of how it goes. Uh, Things with God don't always proceed smoothly for everybody at the same time. I just, you know, Scott, you, you conjured up a picture, a memory uh, in my mind. I must have been about 10 or 11. And one Sunday morning, we were having communion, which didn't happen all that often in those days. And it was always very solemn. And I remember looking at an elderly lady in our room, tears streaming down her face as she's weeping. And, you know, who who knows? Maybe she was remembering her husband uh, who had worshiped with her for so many years, and now he was gone. Or maybe she was moved by emotion. But it's true. Tears can be near the surface, especially as we grow older, but joy and laughter can mix in with them too. And sometimes one minute you're laughing, one minute, next minute you're crying or vice versa. And that's 
what our congregations are. I think every worship leader and preacher needs to remember this. If you're the type who's relentlessly cheery and upbeat, remember there are some people who are brokenhearted, and vice versa. If you're a doleful person, uh, just remember in your congregation, uh, don't quench the joy of others. Right. But as we'll see as we move a little farther into Ezra, Dave, uh, those who were feeling a little discouraged that day, those who were weeping because this just doesn't look like the old Jerusalem and the old temple, turns out they're going to have some more reasons for discouragement as time goes on. And in just a moment, we'll pick up the narrative of Ezra and see how that happens. What does it mean to be a Christian and a fan of movies, music, television, and video games? I'm Josh Larson, editor of thinkchristian.net and host of the Think Christian podcast. I invite you to join us for faith-filled reflections on pop culture. Visit us at thinkchristian.net or search for the Think Christian podcast, where we'll be talking about what it means to be a follower of Christ, even in the playful moments of our lives. I'm Dave Bast, along with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork, where today we're looking at the book of Ezra and the story that it tells about the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and then some of the consequences that followed. So we've seen just now that there was a mixture of joy and sorrow in this great project as it's being launched. That's going to only lead to some more problems. They're going to have more challenges beyond the mere building. And so let's listen to some verses from Ezra 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezerhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building the temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia down to the reign of King Darius, king of Persia. We're told up front that these people are enemies of Israel, and yet they offer to help. Why would somebody who is opposed to you offer to help? Well, maybe they were going to sabotage the work from the inside or, you know, do something to hinder the work. In any event, it looks like the leader is Zerubbabel, right? It looks like Zerubbabel kind of saw through him yeah. and said, thanks, but no thanks. Um, we, we, don't, we don't need your help. So that looks rude on the surface of it, except we were already tipped off. These are not well-intentioned people. So maybe Zerubbabel was just being savvy and saying, yeah, we'll, we'll just do it ourselves. Thanks. You know, there's something else that's interesting here, and it's kind of deep background. These are, in fact, the Samaritans who were resettled in the northern kingdom after that was destroyed. Now, by not by the Babylonians, but by the previous empire, the Assyrians. And this is really going to be the beginning of a long-standing rivalry and hostility right. between Samaritans and Jews. Right. Now, we have to tell you, because here on Groundwork, we dig into Scripture, and so to help you dig into Scripture, we have to, you know, note that 
at this point, as the book of Ezra gets very, very confusing, because right after we read that Zerubbabel turned down those people, then in verse 6 already of the same chapter, we read, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, Israel's enemies lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And then in the days of Artaxerxes, that's the next king of Persia, they wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes. So they write a letter to Artaxerxes uh, saying, look, if you let these people rebuild their temple and their city, guess what? They're going to declare independence and they won't pay you taxes anymore. You won't get any tribute money from these people. If you want to, you know, them to stay in your pocket, you'd better, you better yeah. stop the work. So Artaxerxes then says, okay, I'm, yeah. a, I'm, I'm declaring a, a ceasing of this work. This is in effect a political dirty trick yep. that they're pulling. They, they are absolutely kind of distorting the facts, trying to get the, the king in faraway Persia who's you know not really aware of what's going on on the ground back in Jerusalem, kind of an insignificant province of his great empire. Uh, these people try to poison him against what's happening and get him to issue a decree to stop the work cold, and, and he does so. And he does so. But I but said, I said, where's the problem? Though? Right. The problem is, if you keep reading Ezra, this is chapter four. When you get to Ezra five, you read about another king of Persia named Darius, who the people, these enemies of Israel ask Darius to stop the work and he refuses. The problem is Darius was king before Xerxes and Artaxerxes. So we're telling the story out of order. If you didn't know better, you would think Artaxerxes came before Darius. It would be like thinking that Ronald Reagan was president before yeah. John Kennedy because Reagan was mentioned first and then you got to John Kennedy. So you have to you know, wonder what's going on here. Was yeah. Ezra just a really bad historian? Did he not realize that Darius came before Artaxerxes? Well, and you'll find plenty of scholars who say, sure, yeah, that's exactly the problem. Look, uh, you can't trust the the history or chronology of the Old Testament, you know, and they'll, they'll extrapolate from there, which always makes me a little nervous, and I think you too, Scott, uh, to take that approach and say, no, we, we kind of throw out the Bible's All history. Right. Much more likely uh, is something other commentators think, and that is that Ezra purposely told the story out of order. He jumps ahead to Artaxerxes, who will eventually order the work stopped, as a way to say, remember back when, when Zerubbabel turned these people down? He was smart to do so, because they're going to stick with this for years and even decades, and eventually they're going to succeed. So Ezra purposely tells the story out of order to jump to the day when these enemies finally succeed in convincing a king of Persia to not let Jerusalem or the temple be rebuilt. And then we backtrack to Darius, who actually came before where they didn't succeed. So you just yeah. kind of kind of have that in mind when you but, read Ezra. You know, the, the deeper question maybe is what's going on here? It's a bunch of royal decrees and a bunch of strange names. Politics, and dirty politi tricks. Yeah. Yep. Why is this in the Bible? And, you know, I think it shows two things, Dave, that we can take away from this. One, it shows that the enemies of God are relentless. And Jesus himself in the New Testament said, look, the world hated me. It's going to hate you. Uh, things are not going to go easy. You are going to be persecuted. The world is going to be relentless. But the good news of Ezra is God and God's people can be more relentless, right? Yeah. We've quoted this line on Groundwork before that somebody once observed that the church is like an anvil that has worn out many of the world's hammers. The world has tried to pound down God's people, Israel, and now the church, but God is faithful and God's people persist longer. And the church, the people of God, Israel, and now the new Israel of the church, we keep on keeping on. Yeah. Well, and I think there's another message, I think, for us here 
pretty clearly too, and that's that it's hard. Uh, there is opposition. The life of faith is hard. Trying to serve God is hard. And if it were easy, you know, <laughs> I've often said if it were easy, we'd have reached the world by now, you know, and Jesus would have come back. It's difficult and it makes me think of an incident early in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian sets out and a friend of his named Pliable wants to go along too. And no sooner do they start than they fall into this slew of despond and, and they're stuck in the mud and Pliable manages to get out and says, well, go ahead, you can have it. Uh, I don't want any, if this is what it is, uh, you can occupy the, the city for me. And, you know, that's a temptation when we realize just becoming a Christian or just coming to age is only the beginning of uh, what we face. And as you said, Scott, the need for perseverance. But as we come toward the end of Ezra, what we'll look at next is the note of hope that helps us to do exactly that, to keep on keeping on. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And Dave, let's dig right back into Scripture, jump ahead to Ezra chapter 7, as it moves us to a new part of the story that introduces the key figure, the title character of the book, Ezra. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So Ezra arrives, and he even arrives with a letter in hand from the Persian king Artaxerxes. Now, we just said in the previous segment, Dave, Artaxerxes is going to turn against Israel eventually. Um, He's going to turn against them. He's going to get convinced by the enemies of Israel to stop the work. But he doesn't start out as a bad guy. He starts out as a good guy. In fact, he sends this letter. So here we are in Ezra 7, verse 21. Now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasures of trans-Euphrates are to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest may ask of you. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of the trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. So here we are, 78 years now, by the way. By the time we get to Artaxerxes, we're 78 years on the other side of King Cyrus, sending the first people back. And Artaxerxes, again, starts out as a good guy and uh, authorizes Ezra to do the work of the Lord. Yeah, and as we saw in an earlier program where Ezra's introduced at the beginning of the book, though he doesn't show up physically here until chapter 7, he is not only a priest, a descendant of Aaron, Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore a high priest, but he's well-versed in God's word, in God's law, and he's a, a preacher and a teacher. And uh, so he's given this authority by the emperor, by the king, 
to do that and to set things to rights in Jerusalem. And Ezra's great calling is going to be to spark a spiritual revival, as we'll see in our last program in this series, a revival based on hearing once again God's word and the people open themselves to it and embrace its message. In fact, Ezra indeed speaks like a priest. Here is Ezra 7.27, where Ezra says to all the people, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. So it looks great. Ezra arrives full of optimism and hope, and for now anyway, with the support of the Persian king. But as we said earlier, the story doesn't unfold in straight lines. There's going to be a lot of struggle and a lot of causes for discouragement coming up, including a dozen years later after Nehemiah arrives, which we'll see in the next program. And the enemies are still there, and the enemies uh, kind of redouble their activity during Nehemiah's work, which will involve rebuilding Jerusalem's defenses. So This is true, really, to our Christian experience. This is how our lives go. We dedicate ourselves to God. Like Ezra, we take courage and we kind of plunge in. And incidentally, I thought it was striking, took him four months just to get from Babylon back to Jerusalem. That must have been, that was kind of like the uh, people on the Oregon Trail, you know, walking across that great desert. So the journey itself was not easy. And when he got there, he'd find more challenges. Uh, But that's how it is. Scott, just this morning in my devotions, I read a prayer, an ancient prayer from the church that said, help me to run to the promises of God. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not just cling to them, not just kind of cite them, but run toward them. Part of the secret, I think, for us as followers of Jesus is to focus on those promises when things get tough and not give up, you know? Ezra arrives praising God for answers to prayer that they put it on the king's heart to send them back and we all have that we we you know there's a couple in your church they they struggled with infertility they prayed for years to have a conceive a child and then they do and it's an answer to prayer and everybody praises God and eight years later the little boy dies of leukemia yeah and you say what gives was that an answer to prayer or is is it just all a, a crapshoot is it's just all blind luck where is God in all of this? Because when when a prayer seems to be answered, as for Israel, and then there's just so much hardship, you sort of wonder, is it true? Is providence true? Is the love of God true? Does prayer really work? These crises in our lives, as for Israel uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, kind of force us to ask some very, very hard questions. Well, especially when it's not what we expected. You know, we ask for these things. We long for them. We think this is the secret to my future happiness and contentment. God, if you only do this for me, then I won't ask for anything more, you know. And and when he does, it doesn't always turn out as we had expected or hoped. It's really the story of, of Israel, certainly, from beginning to end. You think of the Exodus, you know, how they cried out to God in their bondage, and he raises up Moses, and Moses comes and delivers them through the Red Sea, and the next thing you know, they're grumbling in the wilderness because right. they don't have enough to eat or drink. What? What is this, you yeah. know? 
And so it goes with us. Right. But what we know about Israel and Ezra and Nehemiah's day, and it's true of us too today, Dave, uh, in the church, we're, we're embedded in the larger story of God. And even here in Ezra and Nehemiah, when things go badly, when there are setbacks, God is still moving his chess pieces around on the board, and he's still moving things forward. And we know that at the end of the day, the Messiah, the promised Messiah, uh, comes, the son of David who will sit eternally on the throne of Israel. And in the end, God does give us um, the victory. We're tempted to lose sight of that along the way. Right. Uh, but thanks be to God that God is relentless. Uh, he helps us to stick with him through his Holy Spirit. And indeed, in the end, God always brings forth the victory. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with us today on Groundwork. We're your hosts, Dave Bast with Scott Jose. And we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to study the rebuilding of Jerusalem by looking at Nehemiah's wisdom and leadership in how to rebuild even as the pressures of life persist. So connect with us at groundworkonline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacob.